I want to start this morning with a hypothetical question. What would you do? What would you do if someone sounded a warning that was absolutely certain to take place that this whole country was going to be destroyed, that there was going to be natural disasters from coast to coast and border to border, that there was going to be civil uprising and war even in our own country from inside and without, which would, of course, lead to famine, sickness, and disease, that there were going to be natural disasters all across this nation, and it was going to be so bad that 25, maybe 50% of every single one of us were going to be killed. What would you do? If it was certain to happen, what would you do? We don't know the timing, but we know it's coming. They've told us it's coming. The source is reliable. What would you do? Well, here's my guess as what would happen. At least three things would happen amongst us or people in general. Some of us would go, yeah, right. You're crazy. This country's been here a long time. It's not going anywhere. Besides, look how smart we are. We can figure out anything. Some of us would maybe say something like, well, maybe, maybe, but let's just kind of wait and see. Let's wait and see what happens, and there will always be time to to get out. And some of us, and I'd like to think I'd be one of them, would say, I am out of here. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to look around this room and say, half of us are going to be dead. No, I'm leaving. My family, one out of two, probably dead. I'm leaving. I'm going to do whatever it takes to prevent myself from being caught in that situation. I'm leaving. What would you do? What would you do? The book of Revelation gives us that kind of warning. Very clearly. What's going to happen? It is way worse than I can explain it. It is way worse than we can imagine. But if we believe God is true, it's going to happen. What are you going to do? We started in the book of Revelation. The title of my message this morning would be simply, The Book is Opened. For those of you that may remember, we've had a couple of little breaks in this series on Revelation, so I'm going to give us a very quick review. Revelation 1, verse 1, tells us what the book of Revelation is about. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, and who he will always be. That's what the book of Revelation is about. When we looked at Revelation chapter 1, it was about the things which have been seen. In other words, John is on the island of Patmos, and God has been giving him a vision, but he's talking first in chapter 1 about what he has seen, and in in chapters 2 and 3, it deals about what is in his time frame, the things which are. And if you remember chapters 2 and 3, it was about the seven churches of Asia, and he was writing these letters to the churches at the instruction of God. The Holy Spirit was leading him to write these letters to these seven churches, and we know something about these seven churches. We know they were real churches. We know that much for sure. Then we surmise or assume a few things. One of the things that I, as I read about the seven churches, I can see me or maybe a church in America in every single one of them. So I believe maybe they represent the church as a whole. There are many who think that they represent the church in different stages or ages. 
For example, at the very beginning, the first church represents the birth of the church and the day of Pentecost. And the last church would be with the church we are living in now. They call it dispensations. There's different dispensations. Now, it doesn't matter, as I've said before about Revelation. There are many things that are assumed. There's so much symbolism, and there's visions there that people just aren't sure about. And then there are some things that we can be absolutely certain about. For example, there were seven churches in Asia, in these cities. We know that. What they truly represent, we give our best understanding from what the Word of God says. There are some things in the book of Revelation that we are never going to know for sure about all of it until we're with the Lord. And that's okay. We've got to be okay with that. There are some things that I believe is clear in the book of Revelation that some of you don't believe is clear. Or you think it's clear, but we don't agree. And as long as it's not an essential doctrine of the church, that's okay too. I say all that just to let you know and remind you again, I am going through this from the perspective that I have. And I want to be clear when I share some of these things that there are very many different theologians who don't agree. And most of them are way smarter than your pastor. So, there are many theologians who do agree with me. Well, that sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I should really rephrase that like, I agree with many theologians. (laughs) Either way... I'll let you know when we're coming to those kinds of points. We get to chapter 4 through 22 of Revelation, the rest of the book. It's about these things that are to come, futuristic. And that's where it can get a little bit hard, most of us would say, to track with, to follow with. There are so many people that say this about Revelation, and I've said it before, I can't read that book, I can't understand that book, I'll just leave that book, whatever happens, happens. Well, I believe that's a big mistake because it tells us in the Scripture that every word in this book has been written for our benefit. And the Holy Spirit can teach us and reveal things to us. And I think when you read in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Why would we not want to know more about our Lord and Savior? And if he feels it's necessary to warn us about some things that are coming, we should probably pay attention and listen. Now, I'm not going to go into deep detail any more than I have been in the previous uh, uh, teachings. You can go into Daniel and Ezekiel and Thessalonians, and you'll see this all kind of come together. So I'm just kind of laying out a skeleton that I hope gives us some understanding as we go through it. When we came to chapter 4, we saw everything changed from John's perspective. Up till that point, it was about things happening on the earth. And in chapter 4, all of a sudden, John is in heaven. I personally believe that that is what the church may call the rapture. I believe it's symbolic of the rapture when the church is taken up. There's a number of reasons I believe that. I shared in previous messages. But one simple one is the church is not mentioned again in the whole book of Revelation. I believe it's because it's gone. It's in heaven. But there are others who believe that that rapture doesn't take place yet. Some people believe it's before all of the tribulation and chaos we're going to start talking about today. Others believe somehow or other is right in the middle of all of it. Some believe it's at the very end of the seven years of tribulation. Some believe we're already living in tribulation. There's lots of beliefs. I believe chapter 4, the church is removed. In chapter 4, the scene is the throne of God. The throne is the emphasis. 
and we see there's these four crazy creatures that we'll talk about maybe briefly around the throne. There's the 24 elders around the throne and a host of angels around the throne, and they're worshiping God. In chapter 5, there is a book that becomes the focus. And the book is sealed with seven seals. And you may remember when you start reading it, when the book is presented, an angel cries out, Who is worthy to open the book? And the Bible then says, There is no one worthy to open the book. No one in heaven, on, heaven or on earth or below the earth. There's no one. And if you might remember, John starts weeping when he realizes and hears the angel say, No, there's no one worthy. No one's worthy to open the book. And then one of the 24 elders cries out, Yes, there is one who is worthy to open the book. It is the Lamb of God. It is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is worthy to open the book. And that brings us to chapter 6. The book is being opened, and it's being opened. Remember, it's the book sealed with seven seals. And the seals are being opened one seal at a time. And we see this in chapter 6. One of the things about reading Revelation that sometimes can be confusing, I'm going to be looking at it in chronological order. The seals, then what's called the trumpets, then the bowls of wrath, and we're going to go through it chronologically. But what sometimes makes that a little hard to understand is we see in chapter 6 the seals. And it's we're going to look at today. And then in chapter 7, it's like, think of it this way maybe. There's a short interlude. If we're looking at what's taking place as a play unfolding before us, after the sixth seal is open, there's an interlude where more information is given about what's taking place. And then we get to the seventh seal. And the trumpets are opened. And the trumpets are opened, all through six trumpets. And then there's another interlude. Only this interlude is longer. It's like chapter 10 to 15, I think it is, somewhere in there, where much more information is being given. Don't let it throw you. It's just kind of an interlude between it all unfolding before us. And then we come to the bowls being poured out upon the earth. And when you read this, it's easy to think, well, I think John did some acid or something. To all of you watching online, that wasn't in my notes. (laughs) But it seems ridiculous. It seems impossible and it seems crazy. But this is the interesting thing, and I'm not going to read each one of these references as I go through, but I want to tell you this. We see parallel scriptures to all of what we're going to see right here in these six seals being opened. If you would turn to Matthew, you don't do this now, but if you would turn to Matthew chapter 24, this is the teaching of Jesus himself on the Mount of Olives a day before he's going to be arrested. And he's teaching about his second coming. And you are going to see him enunciate and prophetically talk about every single one of these seals that are being broken from the lips of our Lord himself. And it's like God in his wisdom is giving this vision to John to kind of even give us a little bit better picture of what Jesus prophesied. So it's not just John's crazy, wild imagination taking off. Jesus himself taught this way. 
So we're going to go right to the first seal. And I am going to read the scriptures as we go through, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. I hope I've set the scene. One has been declared to be able to open the seal, that is Jesus. And now the seals are going to be opened one at a time. And the first seal is open. It says, Then I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. If you want to jot down Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, that's where you'll find Jesus teaching about this. What we see here, the Lamb of God, Jesus, is the only one that can open these seals. And the first thing that happens is he hears this voice of thunder. And the thunder and the voice of thunder, symbolically, usually in the Scripture, is in reference to judgment. Judgment is coming. And he hears this, come and see. And if you just imagine in your mind, it's just a short time earlier, he's weeping because no one could open the book. And he was in distress and weeping that he couldn't see what was in the book. And now the seals are being opened and he's invited to come and see. And it says, by one of those living creatures. The first four seals are opened by, by, the, are opened by the Lamb of God, but the one who speaks is one of those four living creatures. And you may remember, and if you don't, you can look back, but they were some crazy creatures. One had the face of a man, one had the face of an ox, one had the face of a lion, one had the face of an eagle. They all had six wings and their eyes all over their body. And they were worshiping God. And now one of them cries out. And the first seal is open. And he sees first a white horse. Now some people make a mistake here. This white horse means peace or righteousness or conqueror. And the first place our mind goes is to whom? Jesus. It's not Jesus. Jesus comes on a white horse, but that's back in like chapter 19 or 20. This is not Jesus. It is the Antichrist riding this white horse. And the righteousness and the peace that is being image, the imagery of that righteousness and peace is a false peace. It's a false image. The Antichrist is coming proclaiming peace, but that's not his goal. His objective is not world peace, it is world domination. And that is objective. That's what his goal is. And it's interesting when we look at this peace. It says he comes, and he's riding this white horse, and he's, and he's sitting on that white horse, and what's he holding? A bow. Notice what's missing. Arrows. His takeover, his rise to power is a bloodless one. The bow is representation of his authority, but he gets it by deception and lying, not by force, not by power. It's a manipulation, a deception that the world buys into. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, it says, While people are saying peace and safety Destruction will come suddenly. The Antichrist, the first seal is opened and he comes on this white horse. And because the world is in such turmoil, 
Nations are nation against nation. It's like a, like a tinder keg ready to explode, and here comes this Antichrist on the scene. And he comes with wisdom, and, and he's selling this concept of peace. What we really need is a one-world leader. What we really need is a one-world government. What we've got now is not working. Let's all come together under me. And his deception is so good, notice that it says, a crown was given to him. The world will embrace his lies and his deceptions, and they will make him the supreme leader without a shot being fired or an arrow being shot. He's put in place. His agenda is totally hidden. And when you look at this, some people could say, Gal, the world looks ripe for this right now. The world is like a tinder keg ready to explode. Wars and rumors of wars everywhere. We haven't heard so much of it lately, but remember in some previous governments that we've had, not going back too far, we were hearing about this one world government, this one world order, and it sounds so good and it tickles your ears. It's a trap. And it's not a trap of man. It is a trap of Satan, the Antichrist. It's just one of those warnings that we should be seeing, one of those reasons he gives us the book of Revelation, to be aware of these kinds of things that are taking place. John chapter 5, verse 43, this is Jesus teaching again. Because me in my natural mind, I look at this and I say, there's no way this guy's going to fool us. There's no way he's going to let all the powers that be that are already in positions of authority in Europe and in the United States and in Asia and South America, there's no way they're going to get them, let them, convince them to give up their power and submit to one world leader. And Jesus says these words, I have come in my Father's name and you don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. Prophesying. We miss it when we just read through it. He's prophesying, there is one who will come and you will believe him and he's going to come and he's going to just represent himself as the savior of the world. Peace, safety. And the second seal is opened. And once again, reading from chapter three, verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, this time a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Matthew 24, verses 6 through 8. Jesus teaching about this. The red horse represents war, bloodshed. We see a, a, a sword, and it's declared that men will kill one another. Notice so far in the first seal, here in the second seal, what's being carried out is being, in this verse it says, granted to him. All of this is taking place with God's approval. And it's being carried out primarily by men. Eventually that's going to change. We see... The peace, it's granted to take it. 
It's like God lets the Antichrist come, and it's like a test again. Who's going to trust in me? Who's going to believe in me? And then he lets peace come, and then now he's granting to the second seal, go ahead, take the peace away. Let war happen. And it happens. But again, it's granted to them. As I read in Thessalonians 5, verse 3, peace and safety, and suddenly it all goes away. And men are going to slay one another. War is going to break out. The third seal. And we don't know how quickly these are all going to follow one on another, but we know everything that we're going to see in Revelation until Jesus comes back on that white horse. It's going to all take place in a period of seven years. Seven years. So it's going to be pretty rapid fire. And it just gets worse and worse. And the question always comes to my mind, what are you going to do about it? We're given this as a warning. It's going to happen. We just don't know when. The third seal, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6, says this, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, this time a black horse. And you see, he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. A quart of barley, or three quarts of barley for a denarius. The black horse... Following the red horse of war, the black horse represents, as it comes, famine. It represents distress, fear, calamity. You can imagine peace, war, famine follows quite nicely in the way things unfold. The Antichrist riding that horse is holding a pair of scales in his hands or a balance in his hands. And most of us know, even in our own government, right, what do the seals represent supposedly? Justice. He comes carrying this balance, this scale in hand, but the justice is a false justice. It is a lie again from the deceiver. It's from the Antichrist. It's a lie. There is no real justice going to be paired out whatsoever. Famine, result of the war. The quart of wheat, we've heard this before. The wheat, a quart of wheat represented approximately just one meal. You took that quart of wheat, you ground it down, one meal. And it was going to cost a denarius, which at that time was a day's wages. Day's wages for a meal. And that makes reference to barley. Barley was kind of thought as a a second-rate grain. It was used primarily to feed their livestock. You can buy three quarts for that same amount of money. Three meals of a second-rate grain. But notice the very last part of the third seal being opened in in, uh, verse 6. It says, and do not damage the oil and the wine. It's pretty weird. (laughs) Don't damage the oil. Don't damage the wine. Most theologians agree that it's a representation here of very expensive foods or drinks or beverages, if you want to look at it that way. So when they look at this, they're items of luxury. And there wasn't really a shortage of the items of luxury. So it was like there's a scarcity of it because the wealthy have it and the rest have nothing. A day's wages. 
and the wealthy. And there's pictures and stories of this that I could share. They'd take way too long, but I've read some stories about guys who were after the World War II, for example. Going to an event in World War II, they go into this big theater, and in this big theater, there's the wealthy. They're dressed in the finest of clothes. The women are wearing jewelry around their neck and their fingers, worth a small fortune. And outside are the poor and the beggars. They have rags for clothes. Some of them don't have shoes. There's blood on the snow because of their feet being open, and they have nothing to eat, and they're starving to death. And the rich come out and chase the poor away, both of them existing in the same scenario after a war. It appears that that's what's even being added here, and it almost makes you more miserable knowing that there is something available, but you can't get it. Don't damage the oil and the wine. Force seal follows quite quickly in verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, this time it's an ashen-colored horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, sickness and disease, and by the wild beasts of the earth. It just gets worse. The famine comes. Death comes. The ashen-colored horse, kind of a pale yellowish green, that, that look of sickness, look of death. And it's not death riding the horse. The rider is still the Antichrist. It just has the name or the word death written. And Hades is following. The death that's being talked about here in this fourth seal is physical death, not annihilation. What do I mean by that? I mean, when we die, our physical body dies, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, but our soul or our spirit is eternal. It's not like what we are, we die and it's gone and all of it's gone, annihilation. That's not what's being mentioned here when we talk about this kind of death. That's why it's significant that it says, and Hades is following. What is Hades? Well, you can get a lot of different explanations of it. A simple one that I like is Hades is like a temporary holding space for unbelievers from the time they die until Jesus comes back for the final judgment. Hades is following death. A third of the population of the earth, excuse me, a fourth of the population of the earth. You know what that would be approximately today? 1.825 billion people. Dead. And that's when we hear things like that and we go, yeah, right, a fourth of the population of the earth is going to die. Well, all you got to do is go back in history, just a little ways, a few hundred years. The mid-1300s, there was this thing called the bubonic plague. Ever heard of it? Somewhere between 
30 to 45, 50% of the people in the known world at that time died from the bubonic plague, which they simply believe was started by a boat came and it had rats in it that were infected from China and it got into Europe and off it went. It's happened before. God guarantees it's going to happen again. And it can. The Ash and Horus, death. It changes a little bit now. The four living creatures had cried out as the four seals were opened. And most of what transpired was caused by men, allowed by God. Men being led by the Antichrist at the time. But in the fifth seal, it changes. In the fifth seal, I labeled it comfort for the martyred saints. In Revelation, starting in verse 9, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw, John is still speaking, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while, a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Matthew twenty four fourteen. When you read that, first we see John is now looking under the altar in his vision. And under the altar he sees the souls of the martyred saints. And it's interesting as you read the rest of that small section, God says to them, I'm not going to go to the next step till the required number have been killed. What kind of God would be waiting for more of his children to be killed? It, has to, it requires of us to change our thinking from natural thinking to eternal thinking. From our purposes to God's purposes. You may have heard the comment before, the church is built on the blood of the martyrs, the saints who have gone before us. God's purposes are being played out in a way that it's hard for us to understand. But the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs, his church, will be built upon that. There's something that I just want to throw in a couple scriptures out of Revelation, from Revelation, I should say. They're not in Revelation. But I think I get this question a lot. What happens to a believer when they die? And usually we all hear, or I say this, the moment they take their last breath and their heart takes its last beat, their spirit is in the presence of the Lord. And everybody usually says what? Amen. Amen. Why? Because that's sure what I hope happens. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what we hope, it depends on what the Scripture says. And the Scripture says that. Let's look at a couple. The first one's in Philippians 1, verse 22. Paul is writing to the Philippian church and he says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. 
I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul is saying, I don't know, no, I know the Lord wants me to stay. I know I've got work to do, and I love you, and I want to work with you. I want to help you, but I know the moment I die, if I, the moment I depart, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord, and that's going to be so much better than whatever's going on down here. But whatever God wills. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live now by faith, but not by sight. We are confident, I say. Confident. Paul is writing these words now to the Corinthian church. He says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Those are two of the scriptures that I stand on to say, when I die, my last breath, I'm there. I'm with him. I'm in his presence. I don't understand it. I know my spirit's going to be there. I know my body's going to, I'm not going to get a new body till he comes back, but it doesn't matter. It's one of those things I'm okay with, not understanding. I don't know. But there's an interesting thought that even brings a little confusion to my head, and that's easy to do, but... It says, these saints that he sees under the altar, what's he do with them? He gives them a white robe. Now, according to my thinking theologically, they don't have a body yet because they don't get that new body. So maybe it's symbolic, that white robe representing the righteousness of Christ, that these are believers, they are covered with the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ has been shed for them, therefore they're under the altar, and this is all symbolic which is what I kind of think it is. Or maybe, maybe he made some special arrangement that they do have bodies. Reality is it doesn't matter. They're there. They're in heaven. And he says there's going to be more joining you and they're going to come for my glory and my honor, fulfilling my purpose. There is nothing happening on earth. None of those martyrs were martyred without the will of God taking place. Somehow, he's going to use it. He's going to use it. Do I believe he ordered them to be killed? No, I don't believe that. But I believe he allowed it for his higher purposes. And he says rest. He says rest. In the scripture, he says rest for a little while. Now, Hopefully by now we understand when God says a little while, it might be a little while. He's coming back soon. 2,000 years ago he was coming back soon. I know for sure we're 2,000 years closer. And he's coming back in a little while. But he says, I want you to rest for a little while. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. They're asking him, Lord, how long are you going to wait to get vengeance on these people who are slaughtering your people? And he said, I just want you to rest. It's just a little while. And then you'll see it was worth the wait. But right now, just rest in my presence in heaven. Enjoy it. And the sixth seal, verses 12 through 17, a little bit longer scripture, but I'm going to read it. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, 
And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast, cast its unripe figs when shaken by a wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said, or you might even say they prayed to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lord for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? This is an amazing, amazing event when this sixth seal is opened. When the sixth seal is opened and this transpires, man isn't playing a part in this one. This is a sovereign move of God. It is Him changing everything. It affects all of creation and all of mankind. No man has ever seen anything like this ever before, ever. And He's carrying it out. And it's upsetting the normal, normal role or the normal way that creation has performed and existed since it was created. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is teaching about his second coming. And in Luke 21, here's what he says. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehension of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Once again, Jesus had preached this and taught this while he was still on the earth. And now he's given this vision to John for him to give to us again a second time. And notice what's taking place. An earthquake, the great shaking. The sun is blackened. The moon becomes blood. The stars fall from the sky. Maybe they're meteorites. Maybe they're asteroids. Who knows what they are, but they're coming and they're falling from the sky and they're landing on the earth. The sky appears to depart as a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and every island is moved. This seal is different in that man sees the direct hand of God. And all of a sudden, all men, rich, poor, powerful, doesn't matter. They recognize that there is a God and that this is the judgment of the Lord and it's the day of His wrath. They recognize it. They know it's coming. And they are so scared. They try to go hide in the mountains, but when they get there, they pray to the mountains, fall on us. Death would be better than what we know is coming. The sixth seal. God demonstrates that He's in control to the whole world. And it finishes with the words, who can stand? And the answer is, at that time, no one. No one can stand. Whatever they could do about it, it's too late. Jesus is prophesying in Matthew and Luke. John is receiving this vision from God to give to us. And the question should be the same. What can we do? What should we do? We do not have to endure this or go through this. That's why he's warning us. He died on a cross that we could avoid his wrath and punishment. 
The scripture says the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. He became a curse on our behalf. He became sin on our behalf. What that means is, if I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, none of this is for me. None of it. None of it. What are you going to do? If this is coming, you don't know the time. Are you going to wait in case it comes? What if it comes tomorrow? We don't know. According to the theologians, every prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back has been fulfilled. What's he waiting for? Maybe he's waiting for more martyrs to be under that altar. Maybe he's waiting for you and me to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior because his desire is that none should perish, but all would come to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it's so easy to do on our part because he paid such a horrendous price. If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this is part of your future and the rest of it gets worse. Well, you can avoid it. What should you do? What you should do is accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. What you need to do is acknowledge that you're a sinner and there was nothing you can do about your sin. It separated you from God. And if you die that way, you'll be separated from him for eternity. And hell is worse than everything we're going to see in Revelation. But if you accept Jesus Christ, that he was the Son of God, and that he died on that cross, that he became sin on your behalf, he died for you, he died for me, we accept that gift of salvation. We recognize that he was raised from the dead on the third day. It's like the Father's giving the stamp of approval, saying your sacrifice is sufficient. And he offers it as a gift to us, saying, here it is, it's for you. And in his mercy, he reveals to us a little bit of what's going to happen if we don't. We should not need more motivation than the love that he demonstrated on the cross. But it does say that all of the word of God is for our benefit. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, I encourage you not to wait. We don't know when he's coming back. And when he does, the church is gone and the seals begin to be opened. It's not going to be pretty. We're going to continue, Lord willing. Chapter 7, there's an interlude. It's almost like, that was ugly. We need a break. And he gives us a break in chapter 7. And then the seventh seal is opened, and out of the seventh seal comes the seven trumpets. And that in the seventh trumpet, out of the seventh trumpet comes the seven bowls. And there's an interlude in between. I'd encourage you to to read Revelation in advance. Don't worry about what you can or can't understand. Read it and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what he wants you to understand. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you demonstrate your love to us in so many ways every day. God, that every breath we take is a gift from you. Every breath, every time our heart beats, it's because you're giving us the grace to breathe for our body to live. I thank you, Lord, that you demonstrate your love on the cross. I thank you that you demonstrate your love through this warning we see in the book of Revelation. God, I pray that we would all, everyone here would have the grace to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
I pray for your Holy Spirit to really be our teacher as we continue through the revelation of Jesus in this book, your word. I pray now that you would go with each one of us as we go our separate ways. God, I pray that you would watch over us and protect us. I pray that you would bring people across our paths that we may be able to share the love of Jesus in our actions and our words and that you would receive all the glory for everything that is said, done, or accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.